the sense that I've had this morning is that God is inviting us into the most holy place with him. It says of the priests that there was a certain kind of priest that once a year and only once a year could enter beyond the outer courts, beyond all of the noise, the distractions, the busyness of life, and enter into the holiest place of communion and togetherness with God. And my prayer is that that's the place we would enter, not just individually, but collectively. So 500 years ago next month marks the anniversary of probably one of the most pivotal times in human history, in my opinion. It's a time when the church was in possibly one of the most broken states that we have seen visibly, where the priests ruled and governed with authority, and there was an enormous division between those who were employed and were considered the priests and the common people, the lay people. People had to buy their way to heaven. So it was awesome if you were rich, (laughs) but if you weren't, it was a bit dangerous. The Pope was the ultimate authority above the word of God, above the words of Christ. He could make the decisions, call the shots. And then there was a man called Martin Luther, and he came along and he saw the brokenness of this structure, this institutional structure called the church, and he called them on it. And he took a nail and a piece of paper and he hammered one of the most important documents to the wall, I think it was of whatever place they gathered to meet, called the 95 Thesis, where he outlined pretty much everything that was wrong with the church. And he started a revolutionary movement. And the three things that he talked about were, firstly, the authority of the word of God. So that people didn't have the authority to determine who God was. God himself did. The second thing, I can't actually remember now. Let me just check my notes. Um, The second thing was justification by faith. That we don't buy our way to heaven and we don't get to heaven through our good works. We enter in through faith and it's a gift given to us by God. And the third thing, so those two things were the most well-known aspects of this revolution. But there's a third thing that for most of human history has just slid under the rug. And he called it the priesthood of all believers, priesthood of all believers. And so this morning I've kind of coined that phrase. This isn't a history lesson. We're not going back to talk about Martin Luther. But what I would like to talk about is priestliness and the priesthood of not just a believer, not paid professionals, not those in a position, not those in leadership, but a priesthood of all believers that you and I are absolutely a part of. It's a massive topic.
So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to Revelation 5. Revelation 5, verses 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Man, what an intense scripture. I'll say the gospel is contained within that one scripture. You purchased, you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Did you know that you've been purchased? Did you know that your life actually doesn't belong to you anymore? Do we live like we've been purchased? Like we live for another? Like our life actually, we have actually no say over our lives. And I'm not talking to Christians here, I'm talking to the world. You know, Charles Finney, he's one of my heroes, famous old school preacher, kind of looks like Chris Reddington, <laughs> has a big beard and some intense eyes. <laughs> Back in the day, he used to walk into a factory of workers and walk out and they'd all be on their faces in in repentance without even having to preach. And this man, when he did preach, his message was that God has a right on your life. He has a right on your life. So who have you chose to be here, to be born to be alive. Is there anyone in the room? So what are we doing here? God has chosen us. He's created us. He has a right on our life. And through the gospel, through the death and resurrection of Christ, he has ransomed us, purchased us, and bought us to be a people of his own possession. I wonder if you have that sense within you that this is life. This is what we're here for. We're purchased. We've been chosen by him. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Made them to be a kingdom and priests, and they will reign upon the earth. Big scripture. We're going to unpack that. This morning. Second Peter verse oh chapter one verses three says that he has given us everything for life and for godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us 
He's given us everything for life and godliness. So why, when we look at this religious structure that was, put, that was in place in, in Martin Luther's time, one where only the priests could have a living and true relationship with God. They were the only ones qualified. They were the only ones educated enough to come into this kind of intimate relationship with God. And therefore, they were the only ones who could minister to one another based on that kind of knowledge. And yet the scriptures say that he has given us, not the paid professionals, us, his body, his people, everything that we need for life, and for godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us. So what is true knowledge? Have you ever asked yourself that question? If there's true knowledge, is there false knowledge? Quite possibly. And who has the true knowledge? Is it the people with the position? What qualifies you to have this kind of knowledge of God? I'd like to set the scene with an example from my university experience. So I just recently finished studying last year, doing a degree in economics, and in my, one of my final papers was international economics, international trade, looking at how the international economy works. And in this class, the assessments were done by a series of Tests. We had two tests and an exam, and all of that, those um, assignments or those tests followed the same structure. We had to use a set of formulas to make calculations and calculate, really, the way that the economy works. And so, in this particular class, I didn't end up buying a textbook. I didn't really do too much study of the lecture slides. But I, what I did do is study the formulas and I learned how to spot my numbers in and out of those formulas to get the right answer without actually having to learn the topic. <laughs> and I got A+. Plus. <laughs> awesome, eh? So worth it. It was so much quicker. <laughs> Kirsten is tutting at me. <laughs> But I came away with a knowledge of international economics that was ultimately, totally, and completely false. Oh, I've got the degree to prove that I have knowledge. I've got A+. I've graduated. I'm now esteemed in the world's eyes as being a qualified economist. And yet... If you were to try and engage me in a conversation about international economics, <laughs> I'd be caught with my pants down. <laughs> because I've got a form of knowledge. I've got a form of godliness. But I've denied the power of it. Now, in Martin Luther's day, that was the big issue. And the even bigger issue is that that kind of knowledge is what qualified you not only to know God, but to minister on his behalf and to teach others. With my qualification, my A-plus grade, I could have been a tutor this year in international economics. 
I could have taken a class. It could have been embarrassing. <laughs> I could have gone into a job where I would actually have to know something about international economics and perform a function. That's what I was being qualified for. And yet, that kind of knowledge, really, in that future environment, would have profited me what? Nothing. You know, it says this. It says that bodily discipline is of little value. It's of value. It's significant. It's important. I'm all about bodily discipline. But then it says, but godliness holds value for this life and in the age to come. Godliness the true substance of life and of knowledge of the person of Christ within us. My knowledge profited me. Totally it profited me. It profited my reputation, profited my ego, profited my grades, got onto the dean's list, got recognized. It profited me temporarily, but it didn't profit me in the long run. False knowledge will profit you. It will. People will look at you. You have a greater influence. But it will not profit you in the age to come or even in this life in terms of walking out God's true and eternal purpose that he has for his people. You can't always see with your naked eyes the difference between true and false knowledge. And yet God has an eternal purpose for his people where it is absolutely and totally vital that we have a true knowledge of God, not a false one. And if we don't step into that knowledge, what it is that he's calling us into, we're going to be found out. And so we have the opportunity, while we're in class, while we're learning, to come into a kind of knowledge that will last both now and for eternity. And my prayer is that, as a community, that's what we'll enter into. It says that the kingdom is not a matter of words, but of power. And the true knowledge of Christ is a power and a substance and a life source that's within you. Anyone can talk the talk, can say the right words, but who is it that has come into the true knowledge of God who can actually walk out what it is that they profess with their mouths? It's a massive and awesome invitation that we have. And now, the priesthood of all believers means that this kind of knowledge is not for those who can pay to sit in a class, but for all of those who by faith choose to step into what God has. It says that he's given us all things for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us. Who's been given it? The priests, the leaders, or, or us? What an awesome, powerful invitation 
that is available totally for all of us as his priests. So my first point, I forgot to say this earlier, was that God has called us as priests into a true knowledge of himself. And the second point, he has called us all to be his ministers, ambassadors here on earth. Priests have a true knowledge of God and they minister that true knowledge with one another. So the scripture, it says that we've been made to be a kingdom and priests of our God. What is a kingdom? Are you a kingdom by yourself? Does a kingdom comprise of one person? doesn't say he's called us to be a duo, just me and my wife. A threesome, just me, my wife, and Levi. <laughs> a handful of people, just my discipleship group. No, he's called us to be a kingdom. A kingdom has a king. Do we have a king? A kingdom has subjects, officials, a whole range and raft of structure, authority, government, and people. That's what God is calling us to be, not individuals, a collective whole. Ephesians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, turn please to Ephesians chapter 3. The scripture is not new, but the understanding of it is new because we're not living it out quite at this point in time yet. So it says this, potentially one of the most powerful passages in the Bible. So this is verse 8. It says this, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This message is full of big statements, and here's another one. It says this, And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, now listen to this, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. I wonder, having read through that scripture, does that not take you aback? That God has just said, he has created all things. Does that put you on the edge of your seat? Oh, we're just about to hear what the entire purpose of all of life, from God's perspective, is supposed to be about. He's created all things so that I might have a personal relationship with God, so that I might be saved from an eternity away from God, 
yes? But that's not the ultimate eternal purpose that he says he's created all things to which those other things are a part of but not the primary. He's created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. All things. Is that not a bit extravagant? (laughs) To create all things. Everything that you see. All the wildlife. All the trees. All the beaches. All the people. All things for one purpose. That the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. So what is this manifold wisdom that he's talking about? What is this role of the church that is so desperately important to God? What is this wisdom? Is it the wisdom that I described earlier? A knowledge? A thought? One that qualifies you to perform a certain task? Or is he looking for a certain kind of wisdom to be made known through the church, not even to the world, but to an unseen, invisible realm. This is the gospel that we hardly ever hear. I love it that it's to an invisible realm. Because one kind of knowledge, you're seen, you're recognized. I was seen because of my knowledge. And yet the true knowledge empowers you to participate in a purpose that is, like Terry prayed before, is beyond this earth. It's greater than what you see. There's more going, I can tell you, there's more going on in this community than what you see. We are more than a collection of services. We are more than playing music and preaching and making coffee. There is an eternal weight for us to come into in terms of God's purpose for his people that as a collective whole we would come into this true knowledge of God that's birthed by his spirit not by our own intellect our own learning it's awesome and you're invited to be part of it So who's responsible for the church demonstrating the wisdom of God on the earth? We heard from Chris Logan a couple of weeks ago about the role, the traditional role of the pastor. If you guys haven't listened to it, I'd really encourage you to do so because it was absolutely revolutionary. And Chris talked about the role of the pastor and how ultimately he is responsible for everything. He's responsible for the preaching, for the feeding of the flock, for doing the hospital visits, for keeping all the plates spinning. (laughs) Who's responsible in the church for ensuring that the manifold wisdom of God is demonstrated in and through her to the unseen heavenly realm, but also to the world? Who's responsible? We are, absolutely. 
we are. Now, when we think back to this institutional structure that I talked about in the beginning, ultimately, the priest is responsible. He's paid. But in the authentic work that God is doing, the church is not a hierarchy where there's one person responsible. It's a collective responsibility for all believers. The priesthood of all believers. The manifold wisdom of God won't be made known through the church unless it's made known through you. And we have been given everything that we need for life and for godliness through the true knowledge of him who's called us. You know, people will come to Jesus and they want to follow him. And he says, cool, you want to follow me? Well, he invites them to follow him. And they say, oh, that's a shame. I've just gotten married. Oh, I've just bought a field and I need to tend it. Oh, life is just too much at the moment. You know what you do in that situation? As you elevate those things above God and you disqualify yourself from his, the fullness of his purpose. He's created us to be a kingdom and he's the king. Do you know that that means that he is the boss? He's the highest authority. You know, he's my... You know, he's my boss's boss. You know, that I have a greater responsibility to honor my heavenly father than I do my earthly boss. Now, that is the greatest place of freedom in the workplace. Where my identity doesn't rest on my KPIs being met. There's a higher authority, a greater one that actually empowers me to meet those other things. Because in the kingdom of God, what we're not saying is that there's no structure, there's no authority, it's quite the opposite. It's just that the authority and the structure, it comes from a different posture. It comes from a true priestly place within us. So take, for example, being an elder. What does it mean to be an elder? Does it mean that you come up the front on a Sunday morning? Does it mean that you attend meetings a couple of times a month? Does it mean that you grow a big beard? <laughs> oh, sorry, Paul. Next year, mate, next year. Or is it a heartbeat? It doesn't, it's not lacking in authority. It's that the authority comes from a different place. It's that what is within you, the wisdom that you operate from, defines the structure, defines the government, and that is his kingdom. That's his government. It's a government that comes from the inside and then permeates every aspect and area of our lives. This kingdom, this wisdom, is starting to saturate every part of my thinking, every part of my work life. I had an interview on Friday, and it was the most glorious time. <laughs> Everyone was freaking out. We, live in a, we work in a government department where 
we're all on like fixed term contracts and they were all coming to an end so I had to reapply for the job that I've been working in for the last six months and I sat down in the interview and we did all the normal questions and then they asked something about how I handle conflict and come to a common you know common ground and conclusion I said well actually I've got an example from outside of my work life and I shared about being part of you know a community and walking together and what it means to have love for one another and one of one of the managers she looked at me and she said I'm intrigued by what you've just said and she pushed the notes to the side she said this is off the record and she started to ask me questions about my lifestyle, why we live the way that we live. She said, you give to so many people, what, where, when do you receive? When do people... And I said, look, to be completely honest, if you're looking for... I sit with God for an hour in the mornings. I read, I pray, sometimes sing, listen to music, get the chance to sit with my wife, hopefully for half an hour in between feeds and babies crawling around. And, and we read and we pray. It's my life source. And it was the most glorious moment. I felt like I was, I felt like I was, I said it saying this to some of the guys the other night, I felt like I was preaching. Sometimes you get, when you are preaching, some, sometimes you get in a flow and you know that what you're saying is divine. <laughs> and this was divine. She said at the end, she said, I've never met anyone like you. It's like, that there is the wisdom. It's a knowledge of a person that hasn't come from an institutional structure or form. It's a knowledge, a true knowledge of a person that's been formed in my inner core that leaks out, even in an interview. <laughs> I hope they got the job. <laughs> but it was glorious because she heard something that she had never heard before. She witnessed something. No, my workplace is sur surrounded by Christians. I had never worked with another Christian in my whole working life before I came to the Ministry of Social Development, and now everyone's a Christian. They're Jehovah's Witnesses, they're Mormons, they're Seventh-day Adventists. We've got the whole range. So she's worked, she's worked with these Christians day in, day out. She's been there forever. But she's, I've never met someone like you. Why? And this is not arrogance, this is because it's true. I've had to come to the most broken place. And I know this place because my knowledge used to be so utterly and completely false. I was so concerned about my own reputation, my own religious you know, reputation. I was concerned about becoming a priest or a pastor, thinking that that was the way to holiness and to godliness and to be pleasing to God. And that thinking had to be smashed and destroyed because it was stopping me from entering into what true priestliness was all about. And when you're a priest, you don't need, you don't need to protect your own reputation because you're in love. You've received. You've received your reward. It's him. It's not the praises of men. And that's what Paul says. If I was living to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You cannot be a bondservant of Christ if you're living for the praises of men. 
The two are totally mutually exclusive. And so God is calling us to this true knowledge of God that leaks out everywhere we go and makes a demonstration to an unseen and visible realm. What a massive call, eh? What a massive invitation. But the manifold wisdom of God has to be made known through the church. You know, for so much of human history, we've had individual superstars, preachers, men of God who have championed a cause or a community. And yet in this day and age, in this time in history, God is calling the church, the body, not an individual superstar, but a collective whole, a people who's, who share in the same life source, in the same heartbeat. And that's what we're entering into as a community. That's why we're looking at things like the fivefold ministry on the Sunday nights. You know, it says about the fivefold that the gifts are given for the equipping of the body for the works of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, to the full measure of maturity, that she wouldn't be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, false knowledge. Why? Because she's entered into what is totally true. It says that these gifts are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Who's doing the works of service? The apostles? The prophets? The evangelists? The pastors? The teachers? No. Who's doing it then? The saints. Who are the saints? We are. We are the saints of God. I find it fascinating that that the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, it says they like the purpose of the giftings is not that they would minister. Otherwise, on a Sunday night, probably we should only invite one or two people. No, it's not about them. It's not about them ministering. It's about the equipping of the body so that you would minister. That's what will ultimately take us from being individual to being a collective whole. When we realize that the responsibility for this rests not on someone with a certain title or gift or an elder, but the body of Christ, the saints of God. And it says that the saints of God will rule the earth. Will rule the earth. That's Ephesians 5. Let's pop back there. The priests of God will rule upon the earth. Such an enormous statement, an enormous task, an enormous invitation. What does it mean to rule? What does it mean to govern? For me, I'm like, what will it look like to govern the earth let alone my own family. What does it look like for a husband to govern, to be the authority 
in his own household? What does it mean to govern ourselves? So there's an invitation here that I don't have all the answers to. But what I do know is that how can you govern on earth? How would I say? It will require a priestly heart, mindset, and attitude. It will require a true knowledge of God. Because to me, governing, it looks like functioning. So if we go back to our example before. In finishing university, training ground, and there's, I've, over the past year I've been in a transition from study, from learning, into the workplace. There's a certain type of knowledge that you need to qualify to perform a role that's in the future. This is what he's calling us to as a church, to a true knowledge of God that will give us what we need now to live now, but also in the future. So I pray that as we hear the call to wholeheartedness, to priestliness, that we would choose not the religious structure, not holding face, but allowing the work of the Spirit to change and transform our hearts, our thinking, our mind, that we would be the priestly people of God, the priesthood, our priesthood of all believers, collectively responsible for one another's growth and everything else in him. Thanks for listening, guys.